everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Reading Party Podcast with Megan and Lexi. This episode continues our season looking at modern retellings of the Iliad and the Odyssey, ancient epics known for both brutal violence and instances of sexual assault. This episode is not suitable for under-18s. We hope you have your favourite beverage and snack ready to go, because we've got our teas and are ready to start spilling the tea on our latest ancient story. Welcome, Natalie. This is uh, pretty exciting for the both of us, I think, to have you on. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Megan, do you, do you want to start us off? Yeah. So I, hello, nice to meet you. Uh, I'm Megan. Hi, Megan. I loved Thousand Ships very much. Thank you. And I think the overriding thing that Lexi and I both said when we were talking about the book was how enjoyable it is to have something that focuses exclusively on the voices of the women because it's not something that we really hear a lot from either the source material or from a lot of um, modern adaptations so one thing i i was wondering was it helpful for you as a writer to not have so much detail in the sources that you maybe felt constrained by or did it make it more difficult to try and hang the story together both Sometimes, I mean, that's the way of writing. I thought it was, I, I, I would have answered this question differently um, a year ago or a year and a half ago, but having written Stoneblind, the next novel, which um, is about Medusa, about whom there are almost no mm. literary sources at all, a lot of vase paintings, but very few. I mean, there's a, of its metamorphoses and there's like a, a half a line in Hesiod. It's like, oh yeah, this is much harder. <laughs> so, <laughs> So, yeah, it's a lot easier when you've got, you know, an entire Euripides play or ideally a bunch of Euripides plays and, you know, the Oresteia. And yes, there aren't very many women doing very much in the Iliad, but there are plenty in the Odyssey. And, you know, Ovid had reimagined Penelope already in the Heroides. So it was a sort of joy going around and, you know, burrowing into places and finding these sources and, you know, either discovering them or refamiliarizing myself with them depending on you know Euripides I'd written my dissertation on so I knew quite well um the Ovid I knew reasonably well Homer I knew reasonably well but there were still other sources you know coming up and it's sort of I don't know I suppose when I then did Pandora's Jar um which obviously covered some of the same women but from a non-fiction perspective so I looked at them from the outside looking in rather than from the inside looking mm -hmm. out um then I went on a, a deeper dive to find more fragmentary sources, you know, lost plays where we've only got sort of half a sentence that survives or whatever. And that was quite a different approach again. So they have, all, all the books have sort of been different. And I mean, they all look kind of, you would put them all in the same group, you know, on the same table in a bookstore. Um, but the process of writing them was actually quite different. And in, in a way, the hardest thing about ships was keeping the structure going because it was so big mm. and it just weighed such a lot. I cannot describe it better than that, that the the spine of the book is essentially a, a sort of long form version of Euripides Trojan women. But then the sort of it spins off into a whole bunch of other things like Euripides Hecabe, um, Aeschylus' Agamemnon and so on. And so 
and, and at the same time as all of that, then there was this causation timeline running backwards. And so integrating those two things while constantly changing voice was, it, it was in, I was almost insane by the time I finished it. The, the whole thing just weighed so much, just trying to sustain this whole world. And that hasn't been as difficult subsequently. When I get towards the end of any novel, I'm, I'm pretty crazed because it, it's just, it, it just takes, it's, it's 90,000, 100,000 words. You know, it's a mm -hmm. huge amount of space to occupy in your mind. And at the same time, you also have to go and do all the other things in your life. In my case, often I'm performing a show which might be 90 minutes long. That's quite a lot of stuff to remember. And so occasionally I just, I'm really outfoxed by stairs or something like that, you know? Stairs can be pretty tricky. I mean, to be fair. Yeah, or doors. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. Doors are impossible. Like, do you push them? Do you pull them? Can you just like zoom right through them? Really, who knows? Well, not me, certainly, <laughs> while trying to memorise enormous quantities of things. But, you know, we are where we are. I, th I think that's that's pretty reasonable. So talking then about um, all of the different strands, which I thought was a beautiful way of telling the story because you get all of the different perspectives and all of the different little bits and pieces that maybe are touched upon, like you said, in, in other sources, but are almost never brought together as a whole kind of experience of this um, this cultural memory of, of a, a war um, or a literary experience, I guess. How did you go about deciding the order in which you put each chapter? So for people who haven't read it, there's a, a chapter from Penelope's perspective, and then you have the Trojan women after the fall of Troy, um, and then you go back to, to another, another experience. Was it difficult to work out it was. The order? I mean, essentially, there are three timelines. And when I s set out to write the book, I thought there would be two. I thought I would tell the causation timeline backwards. So it was like, well, how could the city not have fallen? What could we have done yesterday? Okay, a week ago. Okay, a year ago, two years ago, five, 10, 30. Mm -hmm. And so that was reasonably clear to me because there was a simple linear progression. And then there was the sort of Trojan women timeline, which is the immediate aftermath of the war and what's going to happen here to this, this different set of women. And those stories took you all the way into, you know, the distant future of some of these characters. And some of them obviously don't have a distant future. And then at the same time, there were the recurring Penelope letters, which told the story of the, the great Nostos of Odysseus from her perspective. So I knew that these three timelines would be working in harmony. Um, and that bit wasn't difficult at all. The, the idea of, well, like, who's going to come next? Who's going to come next? It was like, there was never any doubt in my mind that Andromache would be the last person in mm -hmm. the book. There was never any doubt in my mind that I would have to separate, for example, the stories of Polyxena and Iphigenia because they had to be parallels to one another. They are, you know, two very similar, awful stories which needed to echo and amplify one another rather than, you know, give you that sense of repetition that sort of robs you of effect, I guess. So that side of it was very easy. The difficult bit was working out exactly how to interleave them. So it's like, well, how long is it since we had a chapter which was relatively fun? How long is it since we had a chapter that was devastating? Mm -hmm. How long is it since we had one that was... And trying to... So the, the, the biggest worry in ships for me when I was writing it, and with Stoneblind as well, actually, um, was that people would find the tonal lurch was problematic because... I'm never going to resist writing a funny scene if there's a funny scene available. I am far too cheap and I was a comedian for far too long <laughs> to ever let it go. But at the same time, I'm here to break your heart. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not messing about here. I cried oceans writing these books. You'd better cry. <laughs> and so 
it's like I've always believed that awful things happen to people who who can be funny and you know it, it they for sure have happened to me huh um and so it's like well people don't stop being who they are when a, a bad thing happens to them so I want to be able to keep that sense that you might be smart mouthed at a moment of crisis and that's okay for me but you also needed to had to not kind of go beyond that into a place where it didn't feel emotionally real I know it's, it's sort of weird talking about realism when you talk about myth um, and in a way more so with Stone Blind because it's got more monsters in it, hey. But um, emotional reality is emotional reality just as much as if it was sort of gritty kitchen sink drama. It, it makes no difference. Like they're, they're people. It doesn't matter if they have tusks and wings. Mm -hmm. I think you, you, that balance is especially maybe obvious when we look at um, how you do Penelope because she is bitingly funny hmm. and Thanks. so sarcastic but also the story is hard and tragic and she's she's left with this young child and her husband goes off for 10 years yeah. for a war and then everyone else's husbands return and hers doesn't and she's kind of stuck at home and you have her telling like i heard like the bards came through and they told me that you've been stuck on this island with this beautiful goddess and does she not know you're married like what really what's what's going on here um so i that that contrast was really, I think, well done. But with Penelope, I wanted to ask what you gave you the idea to tell her through letters rather Ovid. than Ovid. I stole it from Ovid. Yeah, Ovid. just nicked it. Straight up nicked it, mate. Um, <laughs> so Ovid's Herodes is one of my very favourite collections of poetry, full stop, in any language. Um, and uh, it was my big lockdown project was translating them all as a sort of as a little treat. <laughs> do you know what? I haven't done enough work lately. What could I do? Hey, could there be a Latin poem I could translate every week for 21 weeks and make a small video for everyone? Could we call it Ovid, not COVID? Would that be fun? It would be fun. A little nerdy, but fun. Um, but yeah, it comes from there because those are letters from the abandoned women of Greek myth to their absent menfolk. Um, and the first one is Penelope to Odysseus, well, to Ulysses, because obviously it's, uh, mm. it's a Roman version. Um, and it is just the most brilliant way. I, I know people find Ovid problematic, um, but in my opinion, he is one of the more brilliant imaginers of women in ancient writing, full stop. And actually in literature, full stop. You know, Euripides probably just about clinches it for me, but there's not a lot in it. And that letter where Penelope says to Ulysses, you know, for me, Troy still stands. Mm. It, it fell 10 years ago for everyone else, but for me, it still stands because you're not home yet. My war it's isn't just, done. It's devastating. You know, she says, if you came back right now, you'd find me an old woman. And you realize that for her, aged probably around 38 or 39, that obviously felt true, you know, that, and, and it was very easy to take these small half lines of Ovid and expand them in ships so that, you know, there's a moment where she wonders if it would have been better, you know, that, that Telemachus's life is threatened essentially um, in order to agitate Odysseus to go to war for the Greeks. Um, and, uh, and there's a moment where she wonders and I was thinking, well, is this something that a parent could feel? And I thought, well, yeah, you know, would, would it have been better from her perspective if that child had died, mm -hmm. if they could then have had more children? Because, you know, she's just been left with, with one child um, who, let's be honest, in the Odyssey is, is not a particularly loving child um, where she is concerned um, or doesn't seem to be um, because he seems like a very angry adolescent, even though he must be 20 or 21. Um, but the real kind of clinching moment is, is the bit where she talks about the Dolanea, 
um, which obviously is presented in the Iliad in book 10 of the Iliad, I'm going to say with confidence, um, as a you know, fantastic exploit. So Odysseus and his friend, Diomedes, I guess, go out at night um, and they trap Dolon, the um, Trojan spy coming the other way, torture him for information. And then I think, do they slit his throat, behead him? I forgot. Anyway, it's pretty gory end. Um, and this is presented to us in the Iliad. You know, it's, it's pretty nasty. Um, and yet it's very brave. It's, you know, that they're not having a particularly good time fighting by day at that stage in the poem. You know, Zeus is helping the Trojans because he's made this promise to Thetis. And so this is presented as a, as a really courageous moment for the Greeks that Odysseus goes to do this. And in Ovid's letter, Penelope says, you know, I'm sure you felt really good and brave going off and, and you know, with your exploits outside the camp, away from all your comrades apart from one did you think about me and telemachus at all when you were doing that and you think oh god mm. oh god this thing that looks so heroic in one context looks devastating to her you know what why would you take unnecessary risks from her perspective mm -hmm. when she is waiting at home for you you know you're the only thing that keeps her from having to marry a total stranger who's go going to be at least if the um odyssey is anything to go by much too young for her and probably really thick um don't don't just, don't do that to her. She loves you, she's waiting. And so it's that moment in, in Ovid where I thought, oh yeah, I don't need to worry about this at all. You know, these voices are right here. Mm -hmm. It's just, we've sort of overlooked them, I guess, um, for, for too long. And so, yeah, no, I just, and, and I, I originally intended to tell the story of the Odyssey the same way that I told all the other parts of the narrative by changing the perspective each time so there would have been a chapter for Circe for Calypso I never did quite work out what I was going to do with Scylla and Charybdis uh, arr, arr, and then glug glug um, but it would have been quite a short chapter but god it would have been funny anyway it doesn't matter um, but I liked Penelope so much after the first letter I couldn't I couldn't give her back so I was like there are plenty of voices in this book we're not short of, of characters here so I thought rather than bamboozle the audience further and I don't know if I'll get to go back to the Trojan War. It would be lovely to do the whole Odyssey just from the perspectives of all its women and see what happened with that, maybe for the stage or something. It still tempts me as an idea, um, but I'm, I have no regrets for letting Penelope take over because, you know, she had to wait long enough. Huh? She I mean, I love that decision so much. Although, you know, it's funny because when I think about her, I don't normally think about her as someone who could be funny. So I did love how you made her funny um, and how there are quite a few entertaining chapters in between the uh, sort of ones that are supposed to make you cry but you know you can only cry for so long so it's true. um like you know I, I i guess i might have asked this before i don't remember but uh, for those who maybe have not heard that conversation you know which character or chapter did you have the most fun writing because there are quite a few fun ones Penelope was a lot of fun um I mean she really was fun to do they were always it always felt like kind of getting into a warm bath when I started her chapter like, oh thank god <laughs> we, we know where we are the material's right there in the odyssey I don't have to have yeah I'm not even turning my computer around so you can see how many books there are piled up but it's approximately 800 um and so I you know that that always felt lovely um but in terms of, of writing just one chapter, I don't know, they, I really like the Clytemnestra chapter. I've always really liked it. It's the only sort of outright horror story I've ever written. And the horror in it comes straight from Aeschylus. You know, the moment where Cassandra see, arrives and she sees Black Fury is dancing on the roof 
it's like, are you kidding? Is this Japanese horror or is this fifth century BC tragedy? What, what, what? Have I not seen this film? Um, and it, it was such a joy to do this sort of awful, crushing, inescapable tragedy, but just across a few pages. Um, so, yeah, but I, I mean, you know, I'm such a crier. Um, <laughs> that it was still a bit sad. So Penelope oh. was the most emotionally harrowing and Andromache was the most by far. Oh, I bet. I mean, yeah. that chapter really, really got both of us, I think. Um, mm. But I will say, I, I, one of the, the standouts to me is the goddesses chapter. I've always loved that chapter. Yeah, that was fun to do. And there are lots more, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, there are lots of chapters like that in Stone Blind. So yes, okay. Because I was gonna say, I was gonna say, you know, we we got the chapter with them. Because I'm doing the audio book, and it's so there's so yes. much fun to do. A lot of thank God, loads of dialogue. I'm <laughs> just like, hooray! I love doing. I I really do love doing dialogue, and I really like performing it as well. So um, even though I'm confident they could have a you know better actor who could do it properly. Um, and too bad they get me. Uh, but yeah, no, they are fun to do, the gods chapters. And Eris was fun to do, you know, where she's just, where there's no dialogue. She was excellent. But she's just so malevolent. And at the same time, she doesn't really care. She's not really mm. paying attention. So she doesn't remember anything. She's not interested in anyone else's feelings in any way. And so she just sort of moves through the world, like baffled, but annoyed. You <laughs> <laughs> never get to write someone like that. It's a superpower but not really paying attention. It was just, yeah, she was fun to do too. But how did you make the decision about which goddesses to include? Because I, I thought later after my third or fourth listen through the audiobook, how fun it might have been to have like Artemis in there since she sort of was on the side of the Trojans, but. It really might have been. And generally with the book, uh, you know, I, I set out to write a book which told the perspective, that told the war from the perspective of all its women. And in the end, there were too many, mm. which is really gratifying when you spent years basically being told by classics as a sort of um, academic discipline that women aren't really there. You know, it's like, it's, well, it's no one's fault. Uh, you know, no one's making the effort to exclude them. It's just there aren't really, you go, yeah, I suppose there aren't. And then you sit there and go, wait, there's millions. Are you kidding me? So yeah, there are some chapters I, I couldn't write and regret the, the loss of. I assumed there would be an Electra chapter for the entire book. And then I got there and I was like, oh, there's nothing I need to say. There's, so she just gets that tiny paragraph at the end of Clytemnestra's chapter in order to convey to you that this, <laughs> this shit's not done yet and that's it because it's like oh there's there's nothing more that needs to to go go onto the page here and so usually that's the issue usually i started working on a chapter there was a helen chapter for example which you would really think necessary um that the trojan women chapters wouldn't be enough and it threw the book off balance i took it out so yeah usually it's it's because of a balance issue there was just too much you know it's it's already a a pretty complicated book um and so I think there was no appetite for me to add more characters when, when the first draft was finished. Um, I think, did I get away with adding in? Lyodomia came in late, um, uh, who I love because of her, sort of, you know, she's just a sort of pure, tragic love story and, and there's not much uncomplicated love in this book. Um, and I can't remember, did anyone else come in late? Um, uh, Penthesilea's chapter got extended. Um, uh, after the first draft was was done because they liked her so much and I was sure that both of those would be cut I was sure that my editor would say you know these ones are sort of not necessary to the narrative arc of the whole and then it, 
one or other of them is every single person at my publishing house's favorite chapter. <laughs> it's like, well, I know nothing. <laughs> it's all we found out from this. So yeah, you, ge you genuinely can't tell. Well, I can't tell anyway. Someone always reminds me that um, Bob Dylan always releases the wrong songs as singles. Um, so he obviously can't tell either. So maybe it's quite a common problem where you make a thing and then you, you just don't know what other people will like. You only know what you will like or you do like as you make it. And the act of making it and the act of consuming it aren't the same and, and come with different, really different mindsets maybe. So, yeah. I mean, I think that both Megan and I agreed when we reviewed it that uh, it do like we don't need to hear from Helen. Like she, she really, I think we both agreed like, yeah, it might have been entertaining, but actually we, we really felt that it was fine without her. Um, I was actually, I think I went on for like 20 minutes about how excited I was that... Um, Oinoni made an appearance because you know you never hear about her. I mean, she was a treat. You never hear about Oinoni, no. and she is a hero. And in, my, in mm. my view, she is a hero. So, mm. yeah, no, I yeah, it, it's really. It's, I mean, some of the stories were really. It was really obvious that they were going to be a lot of fun to do. It was obvious it was going to be fun to do Hecabe because who doesn't want to write one of the most horrifying revenges in all of. Greek tragedy, which really is saying something. So I knew that was, I, you know, I was building up to it for months. I knew it was going to be fun. And then there were other people like Oinoni who snuck in and you're like, God, stop breaking my heart, lady. Just let it go. But there's something so kind of contained about her and, and just refusing. And, and in the end, that, that, that that's what's left to her, having been so badly treated, that refusal is essentially what she has. It's like, yeah, that's in its own way, that too is a is a superpower you know she's not a very powerful uh, daughter of a river god but she's certainly not completely powerless and so finding those those moments was it was really joyous I mean the whole the book as a whole became as I say very very heavy in the end but the process of writing it right up till the later parts was just a it was just a lovely adventure to go through and find all these women I think when last we spoke, you hadn't, Stone Blind was maybe being written. Yeah, that's probably right. I finished the first draft in September last year. So it's taken ages, it feels like, to me to come out. And at the same time, it's going to be out in about two minutes. And I'm going to feel like I had no time at all. It's always the same. Because I know you were far enough in the process that you were able to divulge to me that you were, you were working on Medusa. And then I think you said something about the next one being Medea. Is that still? That's right. Well, in between the two is Pandora's Jar 2, brackets, title not yet constructed. Um, so this book is all goddesses for you. Um, not Artemis yet, but Artemis next, probably, I think. Um, the, current, the current chapter is Aphrodite. Um, so, but I don't know what the final order will be, um, because we, we only changed, did we change one or two chapters around in Pandora's Jar? I, I've forgotten now, it's too long ago. I think maybe two we changed the order, from, but otherwise it's basically as I wrote it. Um, because I can't be trusted to, to remember, you know, what I'm back referencing if we take it out of order. It's like, oh God, my head's full already. Um, so yeah, it goes Stone Blind and then Pandora's Jar 2, title not yet thought of, and then the Medea novel, title not yet thought of, um, and then another nonfiction book on Greek myth. And then I'll be out of contract around about the time that, you know, you're a grandparent, I think, and then we'll be... <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I'm over here like, someone please 
just just hire you to do all the things because uh-huh. I, I was discovering as I was rereading it and I was thinking how upon finally being able to sort of re-listen see that's the thing I read it once the physical book I think that's the first time mm-hmm. I read it but then after I discovered the audiobook I don't want to go back to reading it I was like no that's I so only want to listen to it yeah I wonder why I I think because because for for most books I'm not like that I would rather read it but interesting I think that you reading your own work is what's making the biggest difference to me um because I really love hearing the intent behind your writing when I listen to you reading it um and it's uh I don't know. It's like a nice, soothing sort of reading voice. So, so I do find it quite relaxing, and I can do other things. Um, and it's um, it's a bit like being a kid again, you know, like story time for my parents. So, yeah, you know, it's it's really quite weird. It's a really particular kind of performance that's different from anything else I do, because generally I'm on stage, which is, mm-hmm. you know, it's like stand up me. So there's it has a yeah, it just is bigger. There's a big handheld microphone in my hand and I'm performing in a really different way. And then in this kind of conversation, then obviously, you know, this is just what I sound like. But yeah, when you come to do the audiobook, it's really specific. You're right. Re- reading to children is the only other thing which is like it, um, mm-hmm. where you do the voice, but you don't want to be the character, you know, you so you kind of you have to give it something. You don't want everyone to have a different accent or, you know, I know that there are some, like the Harry Potter books when Stephen mm. Fry did them and they kept all the voices of each character on disc so that they could track them back, you know, eight books later or however many they got to, um, to, to work out what this person sounded like. But of course, my cast of people tend to be quite, you know, wide ranging geographically across the, the Greek um, Bronze Age world. But that doesn't at all help you with that. It's like, well, what accent are you going to do for, for, for the Hesperides? <laughs> so in the end, you just go with, all right. I mean, I suppose I'm just finding a defense for my limitations because I would be hopeless at doing accents. But in the end, it's all about tone. Um, and so when you have a family of people, I was thinking, well, do they all have to sound different? It's like, well, no, because families, I, I sound a lot like my brother. I sound a lot like my mom. I should do. You know, we grew up in the same place. So yeah i think probably it's it's okay but it's a really specific performing mm. style which i hadn't particularly registered until i did ships well, well i mean i hope you continue to read all of your work because i mean i think it would find I, I think it would be fine you know hiring like a cast of people to to do it and i'm you know not opposed to seeing like adaptations but um like for the official audiobooks definitely i was like i think it adds a a certain dimension uh, to have you read it, um, because I know I think somewhere uh, in many conversations or, or interviews or whatever, I think you, you said you, you watched like a, a performance of it and you were quite shocked by how differently people would portray the characters. It's really different. Yeah. When other people play the characters, of course, they see them differently and hear different mm-hmm. things in them. And that's as it should be. You know, when you put it out into the world, it, it should have that effect. But I'm glad that there's there's also my version, as it were. Um, on record with the audiobook. So with this one, with Stoneblind, when it comes out in the UK in September, the BBC will adapt a, an abridged version of it. Um, so how, what, how long is that? About two and a half hours, I think. So it's, it's 10 lots of 15 minutes. So yes, two and a half hours. Um, and that will be performed properly, as it were, by an actor who's highly trained to do this. Um, and the audiobook will be read by me in a much less performed way, I guess, but also... Um, it'll be unabridged. 
So it's like you'll have options if you want mm. the sort of, you know, really professional version, it will exist. Um, and, you know, so, yeah, I think hopefully that will be a that will be a nice contrast. I'm, I'm not sure. It's like, will I listen to their version? Well, I, I, I've never listened to my versions of any of them. So, no, of course not. <laughs> I know. I never watch or listen to anything I make. Once I've made it, I've made it. You know, I can't fix it now. So, and I don't read anything back unless I'm, you know, I read it back to record it for the audiobook. But that'll be the last time probably that I read any of Stone Blind. Mm. So it's like, well, ooh, <laughs> what would I be like? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, all I know is it's on my pre-order list. So I'm very excited for that one. But in the meantime, I have uh, ships and I have uh, Pandora on my uh, audiobook list already, so I can listen to those in the in the meantime. Well, at least you have one huge fan of the audiobooks, and I'm trying to convince Megan to listen to it now that she's actually read the physical book. I do want to. The trick is like finding enough quiet space in my house. Yeah, I used to listen to audiobooks all the time when I drove, mm. um, but I gave up my car. I don't know, ten, fifteen years ago. Um, even though somehow I spend more time on tour now than I did then, so I'm not sure how that's worked out. But anyway, now I'm mostly on the train and, and then I have to work. Whereas when I was driving, it's like, well, I'm driving. This is time when I'm doing a useful thing immediately, you know, mainlines, 85 audiobooks. So yeah, I really miss that bit of the day. I wanted to ask about the decision to have the muse as kind of the, I guess, the overarching chapter arc connecting all of the the little disparate stories because i i really enjoyed it i thought it worked very well and i very much enjoyed one of her, her final lines saying why is why are these women not heroes but the men are look at all they have to live through why is how is this not heroic um so i i thought it was it was wonderful i was just wondering maybe how or, or why did you decide that that was that was a good way to connect everything she was always the beginning of the book. And, and I knew that literally the day that I had the idea for writing the book, I knew it began Sing Muse and that she would say, I don't feel like it. <laughs> Screw you. <laughs> yeah. Why should I? Um, and I, I, that was always that. that mm -hmm. there's, and, and I thought, well, that if you had to, if you had to describe my style in like a sentence, that really would do it. The sort of grandeur and then the punctuation of it and just going, well, yes, no, no. And so, yeah she was always there and then she was always the end and then uh i think there was a sense that this you know the story to me felt it felt reasonably clear after the first draft but I, we were a little worried that if you didn't know the stories already that mm. you might want a slightly more help to kind of get through them and so she made a couple a couple of extra appearances that we weren't necessarily expecting um but also the final the, her final speech got um, extended because mm -hmm. it was very short. And again, I was I was pretty sure from really early on that she would sort of snarl, "Do you hear me? I have sung." At the end, it was nice. It was a nice moment to to build to because mm -hmm. I knew it was I knew it was coming. But yeah, I mean, it felt to me like you can't write an epic story without appealing to the muse of epic. That's just rude. Um, and so it just it it has always made me laugh that when the first draft went in, um, or maybe we were even like at the second draft, it was quite late on perhaps in the process. It's so long ago now. Um, my publishers came back and they said, we're not sure people will know that the poet that she's talking to is Homer. 
And I said, it doesn't matter if they know or not. If they know, great. If they don't know, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't have to be Homer. It could be any old poet. It could be Demodocus from the Odyssey. He, after all, is blind. And, and there's a reference to this guy, you know, seeming to be blind. Um, so, you know, it, people think that, famously think that Homer was blind because Demodocus in, in the Odyssey is blind, but it, it may not be a reference to him. So I, I didn't mind at all. And it really interested me that they were concerned that people wouldn't know who he was. Because it's like, well, we've we spent literally millennia w with the Odyssey and the Iliad at our disposal. And the, the, the goddess, in the case of the Iliad and the muse, in the case of the Odyssey, to whom they are addressed, aren't named. And it's never bothered anyone at all, as far as I can see. So you know what? I don't care if people don't know who it is. Um, if you wanted me to make it clear, Homer, you should have made it clear that she was Calliope. That's my opinion. I'm sticking with it. So yeah, it's a slightly childish piece of revenge on my part. No, I like it. Which I'm sure Homer will forgive because, you know, in all other regards, I have worshipped him appropriately for much of my life. So, yeah. Do you have a feeling for, and I don't know what kind of feedback you get for, for publications, but do you have a feeling for how many people have read the book not knowing the Iliad going in and how they've received it maybe compared to people who have been familiar? I don't particularly get the feedback except at live shows because I'm quite hard to reach in truth. So it's quite difficult for you to write in, for example, and say, uh, this is how we feel, this is what we're, it's like, I, I'm not, there are filters between me and those people because otherwise I would spend my whole life being, you know, tripped up by it and it's not useful. The question is, how am I going to get the next thing written? Not how am I going to respond to how you feel about the last thing I wrote? Um, because it's written and it's published and there's no value in my um, getting stressed now about how people respond to it, I think. So the, I get so I get a very self-selecting crew of people who've read the books and come to the live shows who then want to come up and talk to me. Mm -hmm. So from my perspective, it feels like everyone who reads my book is a massive classics nerd, but that probably isn't true. <laughs> Objectively, that's probably not true. Uh, those are just the people who come to all the events and, and make the effort to stay behind for however long it takes to get to, you know, through the queue and talk to me. So and I don't really know. I, I mean, just statistically, I'm not quite sure how many copies ships has sold in the US, but I'd be surprised if it was a, a huge percentage of its readership had, had already read the Iliad or the Odyssey. I, I, I would just be, I would be pretty surprised just in numerical terms here. I don't know, it's a bit easier to do with Pandora, which has sold, I can't remember, 80-something thousand copies in the UK. Classics is almost entirely in the UK taught in the private school system rather than the um, state school system, public school, as you would say in the States. And that's only 7% of students who go to private schools. So again, it, they must be reaching out beyond people who've already got a, a classics education. I think that's at least in part because of the Radio 4 show that I do for the BBC, because Natalie Haynes stands up for the classics is in the UK, which has a population of whatever it is, 65 million or something, that each episode gets a listenership of about 1.6 million. So it, it's it's enormous. <laughs> because the BBC has total cultural penetration of, of speech radio in the UK, it's not personal to me um, particularly, but it also gets downloaded a lot as a, as a podcast. So. It, it became available as a podcast at the beginning of 2020 and it's been downloaded more than two million times since then so obviously I think there just aren't that many people studying Latin and Greek much as I wish there were even worldwide I'd, I'd be surprised if the numbers got anything anything near there so I, I think it's probably the case that there are just people who are interested in myth and, and stories from the ancient world 
often who didn't get to study it. And I still get to talk to these people at live shows too, people mm-hmm. who were, you know, they were somehow deemed inappropriately industrious for Latin or for Greek at a certain age, usually at school. And they were, you know, put in a different class or put in a different stream. So they weren't allowed to study it. And it, it's still, I find it still incredibly painful when I meet people who are sometimes in their 70s or 80s recently at a festival. And this guy had been learning Greek since his wife had died five years earlier. And he had been thrown out of Latin oh. as a child because his teacher said he wasn't clever enough. And it's like, well, he clearly is clever enough. So point the first, you're a terrible teacher, although mm-hmm. you are obviously long since dead. But the the mo- it's like you, he'd spent his whole life feeling like he was somehow not good enough for, it's like nobody is not good enough to study anything. Some teachers might not have the time or the resources or indeed the skill to teach them, but that isn't the same thing at all. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm really rubbish at kickboxing, but I've been going for three and a half years and I've got better. And, you know, that's, I, I understand that, that busy teachers are stretched uh, and it's difficult, but it, it seems to me almost literally the opposite of education to tell a student that they're not good enough to learn a thing, um, good enough to learn a thing. So I'm very keen to make sure that the stuff that I'm writing doesn't exclude people one way or another, you know. So we have things like the character list at the start of A Thousand Ships because it's like, well, I've worked really hard in the text to make sure that you can follow the story and you shouldn't need to refer back to it. And I argued against it and I lost the fight and I was wrong. You know, I was just wrong about it. It's helped loads of people. And so, you know, with Stone Blind, I didn't, didn't, you know, issue any question about it at all. I just wrote a character list because people need to be able to, these names aren't familiar to them in the way that they are to me. I've, I started studying Latin at 11 and Greek at 14. That's quite unusual, but it means my whole life basically has had these people in it. And for most people, that's not the, the same. And I think, well, how do I feel when I read something Russian and everyone's got, you know, three names and they can suddenly be abbreviated. And it's like, wait, is Alexander the same person as Sasha? Wait, is that the same person as this guy? Wait, is this this? And it's like, yeah, it's difficult. And you know, it's difficult. And so, you know, step up and make it easier for other people. This isn't an exam. It's supposed to be fun. I think that that speaks quite strongly to a trend that I've seen in the past few years. And it's not, obviously, Lexi and I both have this podcast and we have our own individual projects to do with making the ancient world more accessible to people who did not have the opportunities that we did in terms of education and i think it's it's been very gratifying to see not everyone but a lot of people in academia in higher education in our respective fields both seeing the value in broadening the appeal Mm. and accessibility of the worlds that we're privileged enough to study. There are obviously some holdouts and I suspect there will be for a few years yet, but um, I feel like that's a reflection of this surging popularity in media and in fictional literature of things like the work that you do, Greek mythology um, and historical fiction. And it's, it's just been very enjoyable and I've said gratifying too many times, but gratifying really to see people saying actually no gatekeeping in the way that that has been done in the past is entirely unreasonable and everybody deserves to have access to the ancient past of, of humanity, regardless of 
your class, your status, your race, your nationality. I mean, you're right, of course. And there will all, I, I agree with you, there will always be some holdouts and those people are mistaken. You know, it's like we don't get to, you don't get to build a big wall around this. This isn't the selfish giant. It is ridiculous to have that attitude. And I realise that there's a, there's a strong argument for preserving Greek and Latin language study. And there's a correlation between widening access and reducing the number of people who study the languages rather than studying the, you know, civilization or myth and and that's a problem that seems to me relatively easily fixed you can just keep teaching languages and then the response is oh but people won't teach them if there's a sort of easier option and it's like okay well i don't think it's unreasonable to suggest that education shouldn't always be about the easiest option so that that really is on an awful lot of educators who are responsible for enthusing children to study things because they are good and interesting rather than because they are easy and they'll get a good mark in an exam and the fact that people have to pay for a, a college degree now in the uk as well as in the us doesn't change that yeah. it's like you can still study things because they're you know life affirming rather than because they're utilitarian so it, it doesn't seem to me a very strong argument and you know the these holdouts at least in part are, are kept in a job by people like me sending students enthused to them. So it, I find their lack of um, grace and gratitude hilarious, um, but that, that's all I find it, I'm afraid. It's like, sure, you know, by all means carry on in your ivory tower, not thinking that, you know, these people deserve to be studying in, in the same building that you're in, but you're simply mistaken. This isn't your personal playground. So, you know, grow up. I mean, I love doing the uh, like public outreach stuff anyway it's really fun and i'll you know look for opportunities to do it even when i'm not sort of online or whatever so it was quite interesting because right before i left for greece i was just going for a walk in the park and uh, i saw two girls kind of uh, like on a bench and each of them had a copy of ships in their hands oh that's so lovely and they were deeply engrossed in it in the park and I was like oh should I go talk to them should I just let them read and I was like no I can't I cannot pass up this opportunity so I kind of just kind of go over and I just kind of um as I'm passing them I go hey so uh do you like that book I've read it too it's really great what do you think and then they're like oh yeah um you know and then we actually did get into a short conversation um so they were telling me yeah you know we don't know much about Greek mythology, but uh, my friend recommended this, said it was really good, and uh, then I told my friend about it, so they were like, yeah, we decided we would buy it and read it together, so they were both really enjoying it. That's lovely. The thing that always, the moment that you're supposed to get as a writer is when you see somebody reading you on the subway, but I'm claustrophobic, so I can't use the subway. <laughs> so it's never happened to me, and sometimes someone will send me, I guess it's a bit creepy actually, somebody will like, catch a picture of somebody reading it and I'm like that's a stranger stop taking pictures of them so I never shared them obviously because it would be a terrible intrusion of privacy but so it is lovely when somebody is like I saw someone reading your book and I went to talk to them and yeah I mean occasionally I think people just don't know what they're getting themselves into if they read my books in public anywhere my mom is likely to go I don't know it's like dude honestly you're like the limping gazelle and then there's a huge big pack of lions coming right at you <laughs> you're so far at the back i don't know how to make this better for you 
<laughs> oh man no i was realizing the flaw in my getting the audiobook of pandora after i came to greece and i couldn't get my hands on a physical copy was i wanted to go up to the acropolis and take a picture with the book and then i was like no i have it on my phone this is really weird and people would be like what the hell are you doing so i was like never mind i i won't do that but um maybe i can get a a, a copy of stone blind and take that I'm sure I can get somebody to send you a copy. It can't be that difficult. I'm actually coming to the UK for like a month and a half. I mean, this already makes it easier. August and September, so I can maybe pick up a copy. And then when I come back to Greece in October, uh, you know, I'll have uh, Stone Blind in one hand. Well, does this mean you're here for the launch at the British Library? Are you coming to that? Yes, it will be. Because I remembered it launches on my birthday. Fantastic. Now, I will be staying close to the border of wales but i was thinking i was gonna maybe plan a trip in to to come yeah. that's not too far from london you can do that there are good train links i know I was like i could get a train um but yeah so no i was i was really excited when i learned that and i was like oh my god i'll be there for the launch event it's my birthday blah 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 so um i i had this idea in my head of i will have a copy of stone blind when i come back to defend my thesis and then i'll have a copy of my thesis and i'll go up to the acropolis and hold each one in each hand <laughs> yes um, that's the how are you taking the, the next... picture take someone else this will all be fun. i have to take someone else <laughs> i can't i can't set up my own uh, selfie unfortunately or i could but it would probably turn out terribly <laughs> it, it sounds overly challenging with that many things to hold I know, I know, right? I was like, I can't figure this out. I'm not smart enough to figure this out, this, this, this uh, <laughs> problem out. But um, yeah, no, so, okay. That was a long sidetrack. But yes, basically, basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's kind of what's up. Uh, so if I see people reading one of your books, I'll, I'll shamelessly just kind of go up to them and, and start a conversation. Yeah, it's just a mugging, really. Yeah. Yeah, because they don't know what they're getting into. I'm like, let's talk about ancient history. Let's talk about classics. And they're like, what? I'm just trying to read a book here. And I'm like, I am so sorry, but... But no, I was curious, actually, because now I've t been talking to a lot of people about, especially ships, but I've had a few other conversations. I've had a few people actually ask me whether I thought that uh, the book should eventually be optioned for a, like a television miniseries or series of uh, graphic novels or something. Oh, I would read those graphic novels. It's a nice thought, isn't it? So, so I wanted to ask you, Natalie, like, yeah, if someone approached you and was like, I want to make this into, you know, a TV series, Netflix, something, uh, yeah, would you we, say yes? Yeah, I, think, yeah I, I probably would, I think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it would be difficult to do because it would be so expensive to make because there are so many people in it and the, um, it's, yeah, it's a huge cast. It's, it's a lot of, it would be a lot of sets. Um, a lot of it would have to be CGI and it would cost a lot. So yeah, they would need to have a lot of money and a lot of confidence um, that they could, you know, make it, I guess. And uh, if they had that, they would probably, they'd probably win me over. I like, I like creative confidence in a person. So I've been overjoyed when people have performed it on stage, which seems to me a sort of easier, I mean, different kind of difficult, I suppose, uh, way of doing things. Um, and honestly, I assumed somebody would option Jocasta first, Children of Jocasta, because that's got a, a smaller, it's got a contained set and a smaller cast, essentially. Um, so it felt like it would be, well, it didn't just feel like it would objectively be cheaper to make. But uh, yeah, it's ships that people are more interested in. So we'll see.
and Stoneblind that they're interested in. Ridiculous. It's like you get that they've got wings, right? This is going to really cost. But anyway, we'll see. If if somebody makes me an offer I can't refuse, I would find it really, really delightful. You know, you just got to take it to the big the big ones. You know, HBO made Game of Thrones. Do you, know, do you know how much CGI was in that? I was like, and they had seven kingdoms. and We need to get whoever did Good Omens. Mm. Yeah, because they did a beautiful job with that. Admittedly, smaller cast, smaller sets, but like you've got the supernatural stuff going on, and they did very well. Yeah, I think there are a couple of Greek myth things coming up, so I think it'll probably we'll have to see what happens with those, and if they're successful, I suspect there'll be an appetite for more, and if they aren't, there'll, there'll be not an appetite for a few years, and then it will rise up again. So we'll see. I mean, the nice thing about writing a book is that it doesn't go anywhere. So if people decide later, you know, how, how many decades that it take for queen's gambit to get to to the screen it's like 30 years something ridiculous so yeah I, I mean you know it won't go anywhere if somebody wants it it'll it'll still be around i wish i was a movie producer then i'd just be like okay i'll do it <laughs> yeah i know it's that thing where people go oh yeah would you adapt it yourself and you go when are you kidding i've got so many deadlines and barely move for them now so yeah it would have to wait it'll be a few years before i would have time to to work on it for sure so um just because i books forever you know i owe books every whatever it is 18 months for a really long time so yeah it'll be a little while on the plus side for the rest of us that means we get a whole load of new natalie haynes books that's true yeah exactly so i mean i'm sad for your schedule <laughs> but i'm very happy for myself we're all sad for my schedule <laughs> <laughs> at the moment it's, this is such a princessy thing to complain about but at the moment i'm studying my days writing pandora 2 and then other parts of my days doing interviews for Stoneblind, because obviously it comes out quite soon, and still doing interviews occasionally about ships or about Pandora, because, you know, ships was literally just published in Spain two weeks ago. So I've been doing Spanish press and Pandora has just been published in the Netherlands. So I've been doing Dutch press for that. Um, so I'm basically trying to stay on top of four books at a time at, at any given moment, which is quite difficult. And then in the evenings when I finished doing that, I just have to sign my name over and over and over and over again forever because they pre-sold signed copies of Stone. Oh Blind. no! <laughs> um, and it's a it's a nice problem to have. Yeah. So I I feel bad complaining because every writer alive now wishes I was dead pretty well. But they doubled the pre-order within two hours of making the pre-order available. So the thing that I had agreed to do, which was quite terrible, suddenly became absolutely horrific <laughs> so yeah on saturday night people are like what are you doing saturday night I, i'm signing my name over and over again for five hours and my mom came to stay and she just watched me you know sign my name over and over and over and over again while we watched in the heights i was like oh i'm really enjoying in the heights i think i found my island i think i live here i think it's the same forever <laughs> wish i was dead so yeah no it's fine but it, it yes i'll be quite relieved my flat has looked a bit like a warehouse for and they don't send the books now, you know, they send the tip-in sheets. So you sign the pages and then they're bound into the book. But I still have, at the moment, six and a half thousand pages in my flat that aren't normally here. And I've already done more than six and a half. You should get one of those things that they use on Capitol Hill for all the politicians when you need to get their signature. It's like a stamp. You just stamp it or they get the online one. I mean, I've suggested this and I'm told it's not personal enough. I'm like... Okay. <laughs> How can they tell? Right. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the rules are. I've been trying to bribe my mum to learn my signature, but she's having none of it. I mean, okay, fine. It's one thing if you want, like, if people are like, I want a personalized thing with a personalized message along with the signature. Okay. There isn't time for that. They can't have that. 
<laughs> I'm not offering that. <laughs> I was like, I could understand. I was like, I could understand why you wouldn't. But like, if it's just a signature, I'm like, yeah, but you sign a thing once and they scan the exact signature. I'm like, oh, you can't tell if that's personalized or not. I'm sure. Yeah, it's... I think, you know, maybe if I'm more successful, then they do they print it off the, I'm not sure. I think they scan it and then they just print it and then that's it. So that would be nice. They scan the signature in and then on all the maybe next time yeah maybe next time (laughs) maybe next time yeah after the next successful book you know makes it big and then everyone loves it and then you know you can't keep up and uh thirteen thousand signatures again i mean i don't think anyone realized how long it would take but i i thought it would be about 60 hours but i think it's going to tend to out to be about 80 It, it just is an incredibly time consuming process you know even if you've got and last week we had a heat wave in the uk and it's like even i am not going to sit there with a huge pile of papers on my you know knee when i it's 41 degrees what's that in your money like 105 106 something like that so it's like i just can't (laughs) it's too much so yes it'll be a relief to get them all done so i apologize in advance to everybody who gets a signed copy of stone blind because if you can read what it says you're a better man than me (laughs) congratulations yeah good luck with that hey well, with the movie stuff, okay, so you would say yes if, if someone wanted to option I it. would. So my other sort of question is uh, just for the characters that you – I mean, you're invested in all of them, but are there a, like a certain two or three that – do you have like someone specific in mind that you would love to see play a certain character or – No, I don't think so. I change over – I mean, partly because uh, the longer it takes, you know, that people are no longer the right age or become the right age. And you're like, oh, wait, I didn't think we would ever get you because this and now this. So, you know, these these things do do shift. And also, I wrote a version of Ovid's Hypsipoli for German Street Theatre two years ago. Um, and they said, oh, yeah, we've asked Olivia Williams. And I was like, hmm? Yeah. are you sure <laughs> has that been a mistake and they were like no no you know with lockdown and everything she's available we're filming it it's like, okay and I sort of you know it was kind of dream casting anyway because I knew Olivia a bit in real life I knew she was a classics nerd in real life and uh, I knew she was funny and smart and kind of you know could bring that kind of brittle ruthlessness to to the thing as I'd written it but it just it's just shattering watching how how much text they find subtextually is that oh you know i wrote that and i didn't know that was there but of course it's there and you know actors have this incredible kind of like a somewhere between emotional intelligence and textual intelligence where they can find emotion within words that aren't there between words that are there it's like i don't i'm struggling to find language to describe what you're doing let alone to understand how you do it so yeah my my experience of having actors um interpret my work is that they always all of them find things there that I didn't didn't know were there so I guess I would I would be really kind of loath to to limit myself by saying oh I I want this person or I'd want that person it's a long time now I think often I you use them as a sort of shorthand you know you'll you'll find a person who might be an actor or a singer or you know whatever a musician because they'll give you an idea in your mind of what this person looks like but you know what they sound like or something but it'll only be a tiny point of contact and then the rest will just become yours and you know obviously will diverge from them uh profoundly so yeah no i would wait and see i reckon It's very difficult when you see somebody young, when this Cypriot 
um, Women's Theatre Collective, Cezanne Gunaikis, did a version of uh, A Thousand Ships on Stage at Nicosia Lafcosia International Festival in 2019. They had somebody really young playing Pollyxa, um, and it was it's it's incredibly painful. To, and she was maybe 17 or 18, you know, she, so she was probably still older than actual Pollyxina. Um, but holy, it was really hard to watch. It was just really hard to watch. You're like, oh god. And, and you know, you get the delight of seeing older women on stage, which is still a, a, a rarity as it shouldn't be, playing uh, Hecabee, for example. And it's like, oh, yeah, of course, because in my head, you know, she is, you know, she's, they're all just, you know, as I imagine them. Um, I don't particularly think about, you know, how it would feel to be, their, how their voice will be, you know, depending on their age. But of course, voice changes really dramatically with with age you know and teenagers sound like teenagers no one else does so yeah it's it's a thing hmm okay interesting interesting so i know you have uh, a lot of books uh to be written ahead of you but after the ones that you currently have mapped out i just want to register because i there there is a, a forgotten woman that we never really think about if we do she's not too kindly thought of that i would love to see you do something with i would love to see something on uh, ariadne oh it's an interesting choice yeah it's an interesting choice because i always feel a little bit guilty that she doesn't have a chapter in pandora um and in the end when it came to the moment of of choosing that that chapter i went with phaedra you know it could e equally well have been ariadne and i'm not even sure the chapter would be vastly different you know, there would have been some changes, but I think a lot of the material would have been. And in the end, I just thought, well, I'd like to focus more closely on on Euripides, on the Hippolytus, rather than, you know, Catullus for Ariadne. And, and so it really was. And I was so late. I shouldn't really say this. I was so late delivering that book by that point that I, I literally didn't have time to stop and think about it. It's like I had a day you know, to, to make that decision. And so, you know, this whole notion that you could be kind of lounging around with a big box of violet creams trying to work out who would be the most perfect. It's like, nope. <laughs> it's like, who's next? Okay, great. <laughs> and Deonira as well. I, I have terrible Deonira guilt for not having mm. her in Pandora's jar. And then I thought, oh, that's fine. If it's successful, we can do it in volume two. And now volume two is goddesses. So uh, yeah, it'll have to be volume three. I mean, I'm as bad as all these abandoning men. I'm just like, yeah, yeah, Ariadne, I'll get to you in a minute. I'm like, oh God, I am Theseus. Next time, honey. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I am the guy I hate. So yeah, I mean, yes, there's, there's still time, I hope. Okay. Okay. So uh, yes, I hope to see something in Ariadne. And actually, I think I was telling Megan at some point, so I liked how we didn't get Helen in uh, ships, but um a character I kind of wish that we'd seen was Hermione. Any plans to do something with Hermione? Yeah, and again, I thought she would get a chapter. And, and I really did think the next gen would get more time in ships than they did. Because they're only a little bit younger than Iphigenia and Polyxena. But they just, it, again, it just didn't work. It was like, oh, this has taken us too far from the place where we were. And I was like, but this is going to be cool, the kind of generational, and it, it just didn't work. And you can't predict it until you get there sometimes. And you just think, oh, I was so sure this would fit. I was so sure Dido would fit. You know, just sneaking in there. Just it, not only did she not, I couldn't even start the chapter I thought I would write on her. Like, nope, not even close. She's just, she belongs to a different myth cycle. And it really feels it. You know, she feels so interpolated into this, which of course, you know, she is really by Virgil, but it, it really felt like it. So yeah i mean there are a few women who i've written about non-fictionally like eurydice who i haven't done 
more with. And I did a I did a letter from Eurydice for Radio 4. So that was like a short story that sort of predated the Penelope letters. And that was really good fun. But, you know, that's it's like a 15 minute uh, reading. So I can't even think how many words that is, but not very many. A few thousand short story length. So, yeah, there are there's always unf- I mean, every chapter of Pandora's Jar, I thought oh, I could write a novel about this woman. And sometimes in the case of, for example, Jocasta, I had literally written a novel about her. <laughs> and still I was like, oh, I could do it. You know, it, it felt like at every stage I was uncovering new things that I wanted to not just share with readers because I was already doing that in Pandora, but you know, that I wanted to explore, you know, as a novelist. So I guess I'm lucky that the, the field that I chose to specialize in is one that still fascinates me now, decades later, because it, it really is a tremendous stroke of luck. Well, you know, now that you've named so many people, I'm like, can we get, can we just get like a women of the Aeneid? Because I hate reading the right. Aeneid normally. Some like, if you wrote something on the women, I mean, come on, you never really hear from Lavinia. So I'd love to see what you could do with her. No, it's true. And I mean, Creusa was, uh, Creusa's treatment mm. in the Aeneid. And I like the Aeneid a lot. Uh, and I particularly like Aeneid 4, uh, which I have gone on record to say, I think is the best book of poetry in any language written. And I don't particularly step back from it. I think it's a I, think, I just think it's a masterpiece. And Dido is a masterpiece. His version of Dido is just extraordinary. But his version of Creusa in book two is like a girlfriend in a 90s action movie. She just goes, oh, but be careful, and then dies. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> Go off and have adventures without me, don't worry. Oh. And, and that's it. And you're like, wait, what? And then, oh, should we feel guilty? No, could you just appear as a ghost and say, oh, yeah, go and marry someone? What? And so I, I had been carrying a grudge about this since, I mean, it was my... As my GCSE set text as a student. So when I was 16 is the first time I read that, that bit of, and I, I was like, no, no. <laughs> so it took a while, but that's why she gets such a lovely big chapter at the start of A Thousand Ships. It's like, well, what does Troy look like when the city falls for the woman you just forgot about? Um, and it's like, oh yeah, well, if you remove him, then there's loads of room for her to be her. And it's like, well, why are we focusing on his exodus from the city? when we could be focusing on, on the woman who, who he loses on the way. So yeah, that's what she gets a really good go off me because I think she's really overdue. So you're right, Lavinia is probably, you know, she's probably waiting, same. Anyway, it would be fun to do. Oh, okay. Well, I look forward, hopefully, to maybe mm. sometime in the far future when you're... Yeah, let me do these four books and then have a small breakdown and then <laughs> see where I am. And then have a small rest to sit down, some tea, and then, you know, figure out how to how to do the, the next uh, set of women. Okay. Well, we both are looking forward to all the future books um, because yeah. uh, I think, yeah, I think we both have just said, you know, we will read anything you write because Thank we are you. fans. I am I am very excited about Stone Blind because Medusa is one of my favorites and you're right she's criminally mistreated. Cheers. Yeah. yeah, and I'm tired of seeing all these weird interpretations of her in Hollywood that are really strange. It's um, it's so interesting how sexualized she is. Um and you know this as well as I do being as you have been in Greece for a good while now that the word gorgo gone in uh, in Greek is much more she's a sexy lady. In Greek, whereas in English, of course, it's somebody, it's a woman who's formidable and terrifying um, and probably middle-aged, but definitely not attractive. But in Greek, she's a sexy lady, like a mermaid or something in English, I guess, is closer. So, yeah, I, it, it is fascinating how this this notion of power and abuse get is morphed into some, is, is morphed into this very sexualized image.
I wish I could say I was surprised by it, but uh, as always with this sort of thing, I'm shocked and yet unsurprised. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no. No, it's nice, though. Being in Greece for so long, I've gotten to have so many different um, yeah, points of view and opinions of on, course. Uh, yeah. on the mythologies. So, um, yeah, justice justice for uh, Medusa. So I'm, I'm really excited to read it. So, um, Good. You know, uh, not long now. Yes, almost so, so close. close. Well, anyway, I think that's it for us. So, um, thank you everyone for tuning in and we will see you next week for another episode of the Reading Party Podcast. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review and you can also follow us on social media at the Reading Party Podcast. If you'd like to leave us a book or movie suggestion, then email us at thereadingpartypod at gmail.com. See you next week. Mm -hmm.